0: Holiness is a work done through the power of God's grace. We understand that God's grace is greater than sin. Both the sins I've committed and the sin that plagues my heart and my mind. But how do I know that I'm holy? I'm Pastor Jason Barnett, and this is the Dirt Pastorman Podcast. What makes the Church of the Nazarene different from all the other denominations and churches out there? The an, the answer I would give you is the our belief in the doctrine of holiness. What is holiness? Holiness is the work of God through the through the power of his grace. It's God exchanging your sin-statuated heart for God's heart, one that's full of grace and truth. And for us to take part in this work of God, all we have to do is have faith that God's grace has the power. This means we believe that God's grace is greater than sin, not just the sins that we have committed in our lives, but greater than our heart's desire to sin and greater than the, the pathway sin has created in our minds. We believe God's grace can help us overcome those. Now, while we get the whole part about f- having faith and, and we take God as word that, that his grace can make us holy, it raises another question. How do I know that I'm holy? Are there six easy steps? Is it is it coming to church every week? Is it is it singing in the church choir? Is it driving the church van or teaching in children's church? Is it is it as simple as figuring out how to, to open those prepackaged communion cups? Well, today we're going to be taking a look at Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And we're going to be trying to answer that question of how do I know that I am holy? So Romans chapter four, verses one through eight. And it says, what then are we to to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to one who without works trusts him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. So also, David speaks of the blessedness of those to whom God reckons righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not reckon his sin. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, if you study the book of Romans, you'll see that it's full of, of Paul asking these questions and then giving his own answer. Now, in our society, when someone asks questions and gives their own answers, we, we define that as being crazy, right? Because we're not supposed to answer our own questions. It's, a, it's fine to talk to yourself, but answering your, your own questions is a completely another thing. Uh. And so as we study Romans, understand this is not documented proof that Paul was crazy. OK, uh, this the, what Paul is doing here is he is recalling conversations that he has had with other Jews and other non-believers as he was sharing the gospel with them. Whenever the gospel is shared, it, it always generates one of two responses. Those who accept it are those who reject it. But it also generates a lot of questions from others. Uh, but but so but as Paul has journeyed throughout all the Roman empires preaching the Gospels, he has encountered the same questions over and over again, uh, mainly from the Jews trying to undermine the Gospel message, much in the same way that the religious leaders of the Jews were trying to do when Jesus himself was teaching them. Uh, but anyway, so Paul, what he's doing throughout Romans is he's, he's recalling these questions that he's probably answered a hundred times, and answer, and he's writing them down. So we have an account of his answers to them. Um, so in Paul, in verse verses 1 and 2, he, when he's talking about what then are we to, what to say was gained by Abraham our ancestor, according to the flesh, uh, he's he is simply asking a question that he's been asked before. Uh, and he, now he's giving the answer uh, that he would generally give. Now Abraham, for those who don't know, Abraham is one of the forefathers of our faith. But he was someone commonly used by the Jews to try again to undermine the gospel. They would try and undermine the gospel by, by saying that Abraham was saved not by his faith, but by his works. He did works, and therefore God created, the works as faith, and that faith is what saved him. And when you look at the life of Abraham, it, Abraham does do a lot of mighty works out of faith to God. Think about it. God and if you have to go back to Genesis to look at this, God asked Abraham to leave his father in the land of of Ur, right? Uh, who knows what that is. He asked him to leave his father behind, leave behind the inheritance his father would have given him and go to a place only God knew about and take his whole family there. But Abraham had enough faith that he did, just as God asked him. But that's not the argument. But again, that's not the argument that the Jews would use to try and undermine the gospel. Also, Abraham was Abraham and trusted God when God came to him and said, "Hey, you and your wife. I know you're about a hundred years old, but guess what? You are gonna have a son, and this son, and through this son, you are gonna become a, a a father of many nations." And Abraham believed God. He had faith in God's in this promise that God gave to him that he would have a son. But again, that's that's the, the faith in this promise is not what the Jews would use to argue against the gospel. Then Abraham he trusted God. He would trust God when God came to him and said, Hey, I want you to take that one, that, that son I promised you, I want you to take him up on a mountain and sacrifice him to me. And so Abraham starts up the mountain. But the whole time Abraham is going up the mountain. See, we, whenever we study that story in Genesis, we focus on the wrong detail. We, we focus on the fact that Abraham is taking his son to sacrifice him. But we miss the point where it says Abraham, pretty, or we're talking about how Abraham pretty much believed the whole way up the mountain that God was going to provide another sacrifice. But he was being obedient to God all the way up nevertheless. So Abraham gets gets to the top of the mountain he has enough faith and just as he's about to sacrifice Isaac who is his son what is it God sends another sacrifice out of the bushes and that's what Abraham uses to, to sacrifice to God in that moment God provided a provided the sacrifice for Abraham just as Abraham had the had believed he would but even even that act was not what the Jews used to try and undermine the, the gospel message now the act that they tried to use to undermine the gospel message was through the, the 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 act of circumcision. See, when God makes His covenant with Abraham that He's going to have a son and become a father of many nations, uh, he, he He gives Abraham the command to, to kind of show His commitment to to God in this covenant, right? And so he he, he circumcised. He gets circumcised, and keep in mind he's an older guy, so that I'm sure that wasn't a pleasant experience. But he gets circumcised. And the Jews believed that that act of circumcision was what God credited to Abraham as faith, and that's what saved him. And it wasn't Abraham's faith that saved him. It was actually the work of being circumcised that saved Abraham. And as you study in Romans, as you study elsewhere in, in Paul's letters, you will see this is an issue he runs into over and over again, this belief that, that in order to be saved or justified before God, you have to be circumcised. And if that were the case, Abraham would certainly have a reason to be excited and to boast. It gives him something to boast about. He did, God commanded him to be circumcised, and he did it. So, but understand this. Abraham being justified or saved by God had absolutely nothing to do with that act. It had nothing to do with circumcision. And as a matter of fact, none of the other acts that Abraham does has anything to do with him being saved by God. No, no, no. All those things were merely a demonstration of Abraham's faith. Faith was the sign before the, all the other signs. Abraham believed and trusted God before he moved away from his father. He believed and he trusted God before this before God gave him the promise of the Son. He believed and trusted God before he took Abraham up onto that uh, before Abraham took Isaac onto that mountain to sacrifice him. He Abraham believed and trusted in God when he he performed the sign of circumcision. That's why Paul writes in verse 2 for if Abraham was justified, oh wait, was it by by works he has something to boast about, but not before God. Verse 3 for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved because of his faith. Now understand this too, that word reckoned in verse 3. And I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. It means crediting to one's account. So Abraham had faith. Abraham simply believed and then he lived just as he believed. But because of that faith, God credited it to him as being righteous. He was saved through faith in God. Paul's going to shift from focusing on Abraham here to, a, to an illustration for us in verses 4 through 5. In verse 4, Paul talks about, uh, he, he says, "Not to, Now to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. When a person is hired by a, a, another person or a company for a job, you are not getting a gift your paycheck as a gift. Think about it. When you go to your job, your, your, your employer is not giving you a paycheck out of the kindness of their heart. No, they are giving you that paycheck because it is owed to you. It is owed to you because you have performed the tasks that you were hired to do. Th- therefore, because you have done the job that you were hired to do, your employer is obligated to pay you for your services. This is what the Jews believed about salvation. This is what they believed about a person being justified before God. They believed that for a person to be saved, they had to earn it. They had to earn it just as Abraham did through this act of circumcision or some other act to demonstrate to God that, that they were worthy to be saved. But see, there's a problem with that. Because if a person earned their salvation, that would mean that God owed them something. But here's the truth. God does not owe anyone anything. God is in, in, in debt to nobody. And so Paul's going to continue into verse 5 with this crazy, scandalous idea to the Jews. This is what the Jews had trouble wrapping their mind around. In verse 5, Paul goes on and says, But to the, to one who without works trusts him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. Look, look at how Paul identifies God here. He doesn't name him off as God the Almighty, God omnipotent, God omniscient. He doesn't refer to these any higher, lofty names of God. How does Paul re- refer to God in this, in this quote of Romans 4 verse 5? He, he, he names God as him who justifies the ungodly. The God who credits righteousness to those who have faith. When it, when it talks about the ungodly here this paul is implying these are people who made no effort to know god they made no effort to practice the ways of god and not only did they make no effort they had no interest in being righteous they had no interest in being in good standing with god but god's grace was extended to them and they believed and this faith was credited to them as righteousness it wasn't because they earned it. It's because God gave it to them. And they believed in this gift of God. This was scandalous to the, to the Jews. This, this, this was something they just couldn't wrap their minds around. How could How could a just and loving God be acceptable of something that is unclean and unholy and unworthy? And the answer is only through the power and the blood of Jesus Christ. So Paul now he's going to shift from focusing on Abraham and this illustration of, of of a paycheck, and he's going to focus in on another individual who is important to the faith of the of the Jews. Uh, this is King David, and we we all know who King David is. We we if you've gone to church at all, you have heard the story of King David. David, is con- David was considered by God a man after his own heart. David loved God, and he, he had faith and trusted in God. But once David was king, remember, he sleeps with another man's wife. One of his soldiers is out at, uh, on the battlefield waging war on his behalf. And while that man's gone, David repays him by having, by, by having an adulterous relationship with a man's wife. Whether that relationship was consensual or not, we'll never know. But David, regardless, from David's end, no matter how you look at this story, David was wrong. That's a fact we know 100%. David was in the wrong. And he makes it worse because he ends up knocking her up. He gets her pregnant. And to try and and, and cover up his guilt and his shame, he has Uriah killed on the battlefield. And then he takes Bathsheba. That's Uriah's wife. And then Uriah was the man. Whose uh, wife he slept with, he he takes his takes Bathsheba as his wife, and he thinks the whole thing swept under the rug. He says nothing to anyone. He's the king; he doesn't have to answer to anybody. Until one day, the prophet Nathan walks into his throne room, and he tells David a little story. And then at the end of the story, David re- reacts with fury because th- the whole story is a story of injustice, and David's appalled at the idea of what would take place. And that's when Nathan nails him. Nathan says, you are that exact person I described in that story. That person that committed that injustice that you're so angry about, that's you. And how does David respond as the king? He doesn't order Nathan to be executed. He doesn't get angry and defensive about his actions. No, he just simply says, God, I have sinned against you. He confesses his sins. And God forgives him. God forgives him. Now, God God forgives him, but while there's still consequences of David's sin that are going to play out in his lifetime, God forgives him for the sinful action. David was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was an unjust king. He, He was behaving like a tyrant. Things that you and I in our society, we would look at David and say, those are irredeemable qualities. We would cancel him out in an instant. And David looks at him or God looks at David because David confesses his sin and forgives him. And David has the faith to trust in the fact that God forgives him. And that's why he writes these verses that Paul is going to quote to us in Romans chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. These, these are the words of David written in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. And it says, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not reckon sin. David is writing joyfully in this passage, celebrating this fact, because he understands that great was his sin, but greater than David's sin was the forgiveness of God. God's grace was greater than David's sin. God gave grace to David, who believed that the Lord had forgiven him. You know that same argument that Paul that Paul shared, which was scandalous to the Jews, is still just as scandalous today. And I want you to know something, that scandal goes even further than what we think. You see, you and I, we are helpless sinners, so utterly and completely broken, we do not even know that we were we didn't we, we didn't even know we were supposed to be looking for God. We didn't know we were supposed to be looking for Jesus. That's how lost we were. But it's because God first loved us that he came and started job, drop, dropping the crumbs of his grace all around us. To the point where our eyes were opened and we were able to see how, how wretched we truly were. How despicable our actions were before him. It was God's grace that alerted us to God's grace. A grace that says, no matter how great your sin is, I have forgiven you. You see, we have to understand that grace is a work of God, not you or me. We could never earn it. We can never declare ourselves worthy of it. We can never look at God and say, God, you owe this to me. Because without God's grace even leading us to His, to acknowledging his grace, we would never know it existed. We would not know forgiveness was out there. But glory be to God, he loved us enough to alert us to his love for us. Jesus is the one who accomplished this work on the cross. God opened our eyes to our need. And our faith really is accepting this gift and living in trust of God's completed work. We live in faith based on the work God has completed. And just as grace is not a work of you and me, you and me being justified or saved is a work of God, not something of our own doing. We could never do enough to repay the debt that Jesus paid for us at Calvary. The beautiful thing is, that God will never ask us to. God's will is that ever, that we would be saved. And all we have to do to be saved is have faith in him in the promise purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not the result of works so that no one would boast. Think of it this way. Think of, think of the famous story that we hear talked about so often in the church. That's the story of the woman caught in adultery. She's been caught red-handed. And she was probably brought before the, the Jewish elders in Jesus, probably half-naked, if not completely, because she was caught in the act. And they were ready. They were all The Jewish leaders were picking up stones, ready to stone her to death. And in all fairness, that's what the law of God called them to do. And what does Jesus do? Jesus looks at every one of those who have stones in their hands, who, have, who are about to administer justice to this woman who has been caught red-handed. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you who are without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, every single one of those accusers drop the stone and walk away. The accusers in our own lives might have looked differently. It might be our parents. It might be our f- people we call friends. It might be relatives or those who surround us all saying, well, you're not worthy of the love of God. Do you, do you realize how despicable and disgusting your sin is? Do you realize how broken and messed up you you? There is no way you are worthy of the love of God. There is no way God could ever forgive you. They, they are being the very mouthpieces for the devil, standing as your accuser. Maybe even whispering those, those lies in your own heart, in your own mind, saying, you're, you're not, you are not worthy for God to love you. There's no way that God could redeem you and, and use you for a purpose. But we see, because God loved us, he was able to speak through those lies. He was able to open our eyes up to see him. And by faith, we believed in the wor- that Jesus' blood was indeed sufficient enough to wash away our sins. And it's because of that faith in the work of God that we are saved. And we go about living our lives in that fact. Just Being justified is a work of God, not you or me. Now, I know what you're thinking. What does this have to do with holiness? And I know, I, I know what my question is for this message. I know the question is, how do I know that I'm holy? And, and I... I and it may seem like I have no answer for that, but I want you to understand something. Being saved or being justified is the initial moment of being made holy. You see, with our sins confessed and washed away in the blood of Jesus, this new freedom only exposes the depth of, of original sin that stains our hearts and has corrupted our minds. You see, Hebrews 10.10 10 says this, it says, and it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. See, so often when we talk about the atonement, we stop and think Jesus simply died on the cross to provide forgiveness of our sins. No, that was that's a mistake. That is only part of the process. What, what would be the point of saving us of our sin of our sins only to leave us stuck with the 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 the, the heart that's bent toward broken that heart that's saturated by sin that pursues sin what's the point of being saved from our sins if we still have the mind and the heart that loves sin and love to commit them there's no point in that and god is not one to waste his own time or to waste his own breath or even to waste one drop of the precious blood of jesus No, God's will was that we would all be sanctified. That word sanctified really means to be, be made holy. That was what God was after. God saving us from sin was for us to be made a holy people to himself. We were, made, we were saved to be made holy as our God is holy. Let me, let me talk about this way. We were just talking about the woman caught in the adultery. We, we love that first part of the story how there's no one standing there to accuse that woman. It, it demonstrates clearly the forgiveness that God offers to us. But we forget what Jesus says to the woman next. Jesus looks at that woman. No one, you said, little woman, there's no one. Where are your accusers? You are free to go. Go sin no more. And Jesus meant what he said there. I mean, this is God in the flesh. God that created everything through the spoken word. He is not wasting his breath. He's not throwing out an idea that's not possible. He's looking at this woman and saying, and he's meaning it. Go and sin no more. Now, at the same time, Jesus probably knew that within herself, this woman was incapable of living up to those expectations. But glory be to God. There is a there is through the power of God's grace through the through the indwelling of his holy spirit we can be given a new heart that will that will undo our broken minds a heart that is born of the spirit of the, of the spirit of God that the God that is both grace and truth becomes our heartbeat and that heart full of new desires will begin to work to Transform us through the renewing of our mind. That's what we guys Nazarenes call called being entirely sanctified, and that's really what holiness is. Entire sanctification is how God makes us holy. And I want you to understand this: just as grace is a work of God, none of you or me; just as justification is a work of God, not you or me. Holiness is a work of God, not you or me. You see, God's will is not simply to, not only to save us from sin, but to make us holy as he is holy. And Paul was so confident that God could do this in our lives, that when he closed his letter to the church at Thessalonica, he writes this, he says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. In verse 24, the one who calls you, is faithful, and he will do this. God can give you a new heart. He can, he can take out that heart that is bent towards sin, and he can give you a heart that's born of the Spirit, focused on the things of him, that doesn't chase sin anymore. He can give you that new heart that will help you to recognize that the grace is available to help you to overcome the addictions of your mind. Just as salvation is received and lived through faith, holiness is us believing in the fullness of God's promise to us. So how do I know that I am holy? By having faith in the work of God. Do you have that faith? If you don't, it's as simple as asking Jesus to give you his spirit. His spirit that overcomes the world. Even the world that's in your heart and in your mind. Dear God, I thank you for the truth of your word. And this blessing of not just being forgiven of sin, but but being given your spirit to help us to, to be able to go and live up to your call to sin no more. God, I pray for my, my listeners today that they would they have not experienced this freedom in their own lives, God, that you would open up their eyes to the, the, the grandness of what you have done for us on the cross, and that they would experience not just new life in you, but a new heart and a renewing of their mind that only comes from the indwelling presence of your spirit. I pray, God, in all confidence, knowing that you can sanctify me and that you can sanctify those who are listening to this video. God, I ask that your grace now be poured out upon us and that we will go out living in the breath of your spirit. Amen. Well, God bless you. And uh, we will see you next time. This message was recorded live at the Greensburg Church of the Nazarene located at 31 Bluebird Lane in Greensburg, Kentucky. Uh, To learn more about us or to let us know that you are listening, visit www.gbirdnaz.com. Special thanks to Buzzsprout for hosting this week's episode. If you want more from the Dirt Path, please like our Facebook page.